On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, uh, indeed. The incident that we are seeing here unfold in the Bible for us is soon after the resurrection of Jesus. One of the first things that the risen Jesus did when he met with his disciples was to show them his scars. But why? There are two questions that then and answering them. First, why did Jesus show them his scars? Second, even more important, why did the risen Christ have scars at all? Wasn't the resurrected body a glorified body? Wasn't the resurrected body totally free from all pain and constraints and bondage of bondage to death of this old body? So why did the risen Christ still have scars on his body? Charles Spurgeon, uh, often referred to as the Prince of Peace of the Preachers, imagined uh, this in this way. In a sermon that he preached in 1859, uh, Spurgeon said, he said this, At the incarnation of Christ, angels would have seen Christ depart from heaven on his way to earth. Angels would have gone with Christ as far as they could go. And they may have been singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. But when the crucified, risen and ascended Christ returned to heaven, Spurgeon wondered if these very angels would have crowded around the ascended Christ in adoration and asked him, Lord, what are these scars on your hands? What are these scars on your side? One of my uh, most favorite descriptions of Jesus in the Old Testament is found in a book called Song of Solomon. A Song of Solomon, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a book of love. Uh, in this book of love, the bride 
describes her bridegroom. Now, the bridegroom in this book is an allegorical reference to Christ Jesus. And in its allegorical way, this is how uh, the Song of Songs describes Christ. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. But alas, but alas, such perfect beauty is now marred forever. For now and for eternity, the arms and the hands and the side of Christ will always bear the scars of his crucifixion. Why does the risen Christ still have scars on his body? There's an obvious answer to the question and a not so obvious answer. I'm going to spend two minutes on the obvious answer and I'm going to spend about 20 minutes or so on the not so obvious answer. And here is the obvious answer. Why does the risen Christ still have scars in his body? Jesus showed his disciples his scars so that they would see and understand and believe that he did not rise again merely as a spirit, but that he rose again in physical and bodily form. The scars were proof of the bodily resurrection of Christ. This, this obvious uh, answer is quite evident from the passage. If you remember the passage we read, Jesus invites Thomas to not only see his scars, but Jesus tells Thomas, Thomas, come, touch and feel my scars. Jesus did that so Thomas would be convinced that he had risen in bodily form. The bodily resurrection of Christ is a crucial doctrine. Because Jesus rose again in, in bodily form, all believers who die before Christ comes again will also rise again in bodily form. In Jesus, we all have the hope of a bodily resurrection. And that's the obvious question. Why did Jesus, why did the risen Christ still have scars on his body? But there's a not so obvious answer to the question. The scars of Christ remain to not just remind us of the pain of Christ, but the scars of Christ also remain to remind us of the shame of Christ. Yes, the scars remind us of the excruciating pain that Christ endured on the cross. He was whipped, scourged, beaten, bruised, and nailed to death. But more importantly, I think, the scars of Christ remain 
to also remind us of the shame of Christ. For it is only the shame of Christ that can wipe away our own shame. What do I mean by the shame of Christ? At his crucifixion, people spat upon the Son of God. People slapped Christ across his face. He was verbally mocked and insulted. He was stripped of all his clothes before he was mounted on the cross. And as he hung on the cross naked in the throes of a cruel, despicable death, passers-by insulted him and shamed Christ some more. The Son of God was shamed, but not for his failures, for he had none. The Son of God was shamed for all of your failures and mine, for we have many. The scars of Christ also speak of the shame of Christ. The risen Christ still carries scars, so we can see that he is not ashamed of the shame that he endured for our sake. Because Christ does not hide his scars of shame, we no longer need to hide in our shame. Because Christ no longer does not hide his scars of shame, we, not, we no longer need to hide in our shame. Scars almost always carry shame. Uh, most teenagers are ashamed of the scars left by their pimples. As great as the joy of childbirth, childbirth may be, most young mothers would still look down at the stretched scars of their pregnancy and feel at least some amount of body shame. A warrior may show his scars with pride, but only if he's alive. What scars can a warrior boast of if he died from his wounds? Shame. This sermon is all about how the resurrection of Christ helps us overcome our shame. Shame is the most painful and the most demeaning part of the human experience in a broken world. Not sickness, not poverty, not losing a job, not even hunger or thirst, not a rocky marriage, not a breakup, not singleness. Shame is the worst form of suffering a human being can ever endure. Shame is the deep and fundamental reality of the fallen human condition. Deep, deep, deep inside, we are all afraid of being shamed. If we look within our hearts, if we look deep enough, we will find that almost every one of us, shame is one of the strongest motivators in our lives. We may not realize it, we may not acknowledge it, we may not understand it, but all the past shame 
that you and I have endured are still shaping our lives in the present. There's no one here who has not experienced shame. Hurt goes away in time. Pain goes away in time. Most sicknesses heal in time. Disappointments fade away in time. But shame adamantly never leaves our souls. When I was in my uh, 11th grade, I, I had this massive crush on a, on a pretty girl in, in the 10th grade. She was way out of my league. <laughs> like, like way, way, way out of my league. Um, but I was kind of blinded, naive, blinded in my infatuation. And uh, one of my classmates uh, happened to be a family friend of this girl. And he found out about my crush on her, and he ganged up with a few friends of mine, and they pranked me. So this friend, he walked up to me and he said, uh, I think she has a crush on you. He, he totally convinced me. Not that I needed much convincing. You know, I, I fell for the prank hook, line, and sinker. And I decided to make my move. Uh, in those days, you couldn't flirt a little on Instagram DM before you make a move. There were no mobile phones back then, so WhatsApp was not an option either. And so I, I brought a greeting card. In those days, that was the thing. And I wrote out some romantic nonsense. <laughs> and I boldly walked up and gave it to her. And this pretty girl tore up the card without even reading it. And this, this was kind of in, in, in public. And, and to make matters worse, my, my sister, who was in the same school, uh, came to hear about this. And I felt so ashamed. 35 years ago, 35 years later, as I narrate this incident right now, I still flinch a little bit. Shame never goes away. It stays. Not only does it remain in the heart, but it shapes us. It drives us. It influences the choices we make, the decisions we make, the life we live, the fears we have. Shame controls us. Every one of us, we experience three kinds of shame. First, there is personal or psychological shame. This is inside out. This is what we feel ourselves. Nobody shames us. We are ashamed by ourselves without any external cause. This is internal, personal shame. The second is social shame. This is outside in. This is what others make us feel. Your, your classmates in college, your peers at work, your family, even within the church sometimes, sadly. Maybe your spouse, even. They all make us feel ashamed in some way or the other. That's the second thing, social shame, outside in. The third shame that we all feel is the shame that we have failed God. This is downward up. All of us experience. You might be an atheist. You might say, I don't believe in God. But in some deep way, at least in a moralistic way, you do feel a shame that is downward up. 
Adam and Eve, when they felt, when they sinned, they felt ashamed and tried to hide from God. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you struggled with sin this past week, and you're right now behaving like a good follower of Jesus this Easter morning, the shame of being exposed is what is making you pretend now. If for those of us who are not strong enough to pretend, or for those of us who are not foolish enough to pretend, shame will force us to run away and hide. Either way, either way, either through pretension or through hiding or withdrawal, shame will connect, disconnect us from God and from gospel community. Listen, I, I say, what I'm about to say, I say carefully. I say this very, very, very carefully. So hear me out. If you are not aware how shame is shaping you, coming to church can be bad for you. If shame is making you pretend to be good, then when you come to church, you're going to see a lot of people who are externally seem to be good. And when you pretend, and you see a lot of people who are externally looking good, you're going to pretend more and more and more. And people, sadly, can spend a lifetime in church pretending because the fear of shame is just too strong. But if we hide in our sin and in our shame, we may never enjoy the full freedom and the healing that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus brings our sin into the light, not to shame us, but to heal us. For Jesus takes away the fear of shame. Not only will Jesus never ever shame you, but remember that Jesus took your shame upon him on the cross. Which is why he was stripped naked and nailed to the cross. So that he would take your shame and mine upon himself. Because Jesus was shamed for our sins, he is able to empathize with us in our shame. Listen, no one, no one can empathize with you in your shame more than Christ can. We need to remember this. We need to preach this to our souls. We need to remind ourselves that in Jesus, we need not pretend, for shame has no control over us. You see, shame is the opposite of faith. When we sin, faith helps us to run to Christ and to gospel community. But shame, shame makes us run away from Christ and from gospel community. Shame is not only painful, but shame is also dangerous for our souls. In her book, Unashamed, Healing Our Brokenness and Finding Freedom from Shame, Heather Nelson gives us a deep understanding of human shame. 
she talks about different things that cause us to experience shame. And she, among many things, I've just pulled out three things for us. Nelson says that first, shame can arise both from past and present sin. Left un unaddressed, left unaddressed, over time, shame can leave us feeling deeply unworthy and insecure. Years of, years of shame you may have experienced in your childhood is going to leave you insecure and feeling unworthy in your adulthood, in your careers maybe, in your relationships, in your social life. That's the first thing she says. Second, she says, we're not only ashamed for our own sins, Nelson says, we often feel shame when others sin against us. You see, when parents keep fighting, or when parents break up, a child will often feel the shame for it, even though he or she was not at fault. A victim of sexual abuse has com committed no sin, but most victims of abuse will very likely be haunted by shame from such incidents, even though they did nothing wrong. We feel ashamed even when others sin against us. Third, Nelson reminds us that many people who feel shame will very likely also perpetrate their shame on others. This is important. Most people who experience shame will very likely also perpetrate their shame onto others. A mother who is ashamed of her body will overly criticize her child's eating and clothing choices, passing on body shame from one generation to another. If you're rejected in your childhood, if you experience the shame of rejection in your childhood, when you're an adult and married, you're very likely, we are very likely to perpetrate that shame onto your marriage as well. Shame perpetrates shame. There's one more thing. Shame is very different from guilt. Very different. When you feel guilty, you're feeling, I did something wicked. But shame cuts deeper than guilt. When you're feeling shame, you're feeling, I am something wicked. It's not, I did something wicked. I am something wicked. It is possible to live with guilt, but it's impossible. It is impossible to live with shame. Impossible. Aji and I, we, we recently watched uh, a crime psychology series, Mindhunter. Um, uh, the series documents the FBI's uh, early attempts at, at psychological profiling of serial killers. And the series shows um, several seri serial killers being interviewed. Several of them. Not one of them feel any sense of guilt at all. In their interviews recounting their, their multiple murders, uh, they seem calm, composed, and quite often they even boast of their kills. They have no guilt whatsoever. 
And yet, every one of them fall apart when reminded of the shame they experienced as children. In fact, in many of their cases, it was the shame that they experienced as a child that turned them into serial killers later. You see, it is possible to live with guilt. It is impossible to live with shame. And we are not just talking about criminals here. Shame shapes ordinary men and women too. You and I, we are shaped by the shames of our past. And our shames shape us in many, many ways. Are we aware of how our shame is shaping us? Have you yet understood why you are so driven in your careers? Could it be that some shame of failure in the past is motivating you in your careers in the present? Why are you so touchy with people? Why are you so sensitive? Why do you snap at, at the slightest of provocation? Is there some deep shame that's making you overly sensitive? Why are you quick to become overly defensive or overly emotional, even at the slightest hint of any correction or criticism or even the slightest hint of any feedback? Is it a past shame that's controlling your present responses. Why do you keep fighting with your close friends? Why, why is it that the more you love someone, the more you seem to fight with that person? Why is it that you keep fighting with your spouse? Could it be, could it be that you are perpetrating your past shame onto your close friends or your spouse? Are you aware, are we aware of how much our past shame may be motivating our present selves. If you were able to relate to any of these real-life examples, what I'm about to say now is very important to you. It, it is very important. You see, sin and shame are not the same. Even though we speak about both in, in the same brush, we paint both in the same shade, Sin and shame are very different. Sin is what we do. Shame is how we feel about what we've done. And shame, shame is deeper than even sin. I say this because shame can linger even when sin is forgiven. This is important. Shame can linger even when sin is forgiven. And quite often as followers of Jesus, we readily receive the grace that takes away all the guilt of sin, that wipes away our sin. But the shame of our sin might continue to torment us consciously and subconsciously for years. And so you see, this is why, this is why the scars on the body of the risen Christ are so, so, so profound. For the scars on the body of the risen Christ remind us that Christ was shamed in our place. 
The scars remind us that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, not only to take our sin, not to take away our sin, but Jesus died and rose again from the dead, also to take away our shame. And this is an Easter sermon. And I want to land this, I want to close by helping us see how the resurrection of Christ Jesus and only the resurrection of Christ Jesus can save us and heal us from our shame. To understand this, we must understand the difference between shame and guilt. They're two different things, shame and guilt. The opposite of guilt is innocence. The opposite of shame is honor. You see, forgiveness, as beautiful as it is, forgiveness can wash, wash clean the stains of our sin and guilt. But forgiveness, mere forgiveness cannot wash away our shame. We need more than forgiveness. We need more than forgiveness to be freed from our shame. We need honor to be freed from our shame. We need glory to be freed from our shame. Forgiveness is not enough. It's enough for sin and guilt, but not enough for shame. And so, the resurrection of Christ Jesus frees us from shame in two ways. First, because the risen Christ is unashamed to carry his scars of shame, all of our shame is also undone. Our shame loses its power in the light of the scars of the risen Christ. The next time you feel ashamed, think of the scars that still remain on the body of the risen Christ. Second, with all his scars, Jesus' resurrection also points us to the glorious body we too will receive when Christ comes back again. His resurrection points to the coming beauty and the glory of us, the church, his bride. The Bible says we are going to be made beautiful, without blemish, radiant. We have glory awaiting us. The resurrection of Christ Jesus gives us honor. It gives us glory by assuring us of a glorious body just like his. And so if the death of Christ removes our sin, the resurrection of Christ wipes away our shame. In his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, assures us of more than mere forgiveness. He promises glory. He promises honor. For nothing less than that, nothing less than the glory and the honor that God himself bestows upon us can remove our shame. Lastly, what about our scars? What about our scars? Jesus carried his physical scars on his body to heaven. Jesus carried the ascended Christ, rose again with the scars on his body. Jesus carries on his body the scars of his crucifixion for all eternity. 
will we also carry our emotional scars into eternal life? I don't think so. I don't think so. The scars we have are scars of sin. The scars on his body are the scars of redemption. Our scars testify to our brokenness. They must go. His scars testify to his redemption. They will remain forever, for all eternity. So this makes me wonder. This makes me wonder, in eternal life, will Christ be the only one with scars? Will he be the only one with scars? Imagine an eternity where Christ, the sinless Savior, the blemishless Lamb, God himself. Imagine heaven, imagine eternity where all of us who are so sinful deserve to carry the sins of our scars of our sin into eternity. We're completely forgiven. We are smooth clean. We carry no more scars. But Christ, the one who died to take our sin and shame upon himself, he is the only one with scars in all of eternity. If this turns out to be true, this will make us worship Christ more and more in all of eternity. Could he be the only one in eternity with scars on his body? As I close in prayer, I want to invite, um, if, if you are who we would call an explorer, someone who's curious about Jesus, someone who's interested in Jesus, uh, if someone, maybe a friend invited you uh, here, this is maybe the very first time you are at a church, as I close in prayer, I want to invite you. I want to give you some space in the quietness of your heart, in the stillness of your heart, not with a loud expressed voice, but in the stillness of your heart, would you want to cry out, Jesus, heal me of my shame. Jesus, heal me of, I, of, of my sin. As I said at the beginning of the service, Christ is for everyone. Everyone is invited to call on the name of Jesus and be saved. To call on the name of Jesus to have your sins forgiven and to have eternal life in Him. So as I pause in silence for 30 seconds, uh, I want to invite you to just pray in your own hearts, Jesus, heal me of my shame. Jesus, save me. The rest of us, for those of us who are followers of Christ Jesus, we can join in prayer too. We need healing for our shame. Even when sin is forgiven, shame can linger. And this morning, I believe the power of God to bring healing for our shame is there in our midst. Would you close uh, your eye and just cry out to Christ in silence for 30 seconds before I close us in prayer.
Lord Jesus, we fix our eyes this morning, Lord, on the scars that still remain on your risen body. Perfection, perfect beauty, perfect goodness, now bearing the scars of our sin, bearing, proclaiming, singing of the price that was paid for our redemption. So, Lord, as we fix our eyes on the scars of the risen Christ, may every one of us be healed of our shame. Shame that might have held us captive, shame from our childhood perhaps even, that may have, that may have and may still be holding us captive. Would you free us, Lord Jesus, from all of that shame as we fix our eyes on the scars on the hands and the feet and on the side of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain for us. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.